Hey guys, it's Kelly. And before we get into today's case, I want to tell you about a new podcast called Key to the Case. Each week, Sam takes her co-host, John, along with listeners, on a deep dive into an unsolved mystery, like the disappearance of Barbara Bolick, an avid hiker who disappeared in the mountains while her hiking partner was just feet away. Sam and Sean provide a thorough examination of each case, and they shed light on stories that have previously remained out of the spotlight. I enjoyed Key to the Case, and I know you will too. You can find Key to the Case wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to the show. This is the co-host, Austin, and I'm here with the host, Kelly. We're fighting because um, I can do a way better accent than Austin can. And I was was just doing an accent, and I thought, why not? I can just pretend that I'm from another country. And I told her to go ahead and start another episode with that accent. And I said, blimey, you have the Let's worst get into the bloody accent show, I've Kelly. ever heard. Accident, I said. Yeah, now who's who? Anyway, I love accents. They're so fun. Welcome to the show. <clears throat> All right, listen. We got a message from someone through mamamystery.com. They okay. requested this case, and I cannot believe that I have not heard of it, given how close it is to us. Okay. Yeah, so this is from Teresa. She says, I worked at a nightclub called Eyes back when Richard Grissom was kidnapping and killing women in Kansas City. Sheesh. I waited on him at the club, never having any idea what a horrible man he was. Very scary to know one of his last victims was seen at Eyes before she was killed. I always, I've always been spooked by this case and would find it interesting if you covered it on Mama Mystery. Love your podcast. Makes my day go so fast listening to you in Austin. Thank nice. You. Thank you. So thank you, Teresa. So yeah, I had never heard of this guy. He was um, apparently bouncing around Kansas City in the late 80s, which is when I was born. So I actually asked some of my family members if they had heard of him and they had. And I was like, how did I not know that there was this guy in Kansas City? We well, we you. covered the Kansas City Butcher. We covered BTK. Those are all guys that are relatively co- close, if not in the Kansas City metro area. But yeah, I never heard of this one. So I have written this episode um, with all the information I could find on Richard Anthony Grissom Jr. All right. Are you ready? Born ready. All right. So Richard Anthony Grissom Jr. was born in South Korea to a South Korean mother and an anonymous member of the U.S. Armed Forces on November 10th of 1960. And I feel like that is a little bit common, like these, the things are going on. No, like when when guys are overseas, they kind of hook up with some of the natives that were over there, like during the, was that like the Vietnam War? Was the 60s? Yeah, the, six, the, more in the early 60s. 70s. I don't even know. Early 70s. I feel really dumb right now. Um, can we Google like what was going on in the 60s? The watch I have on is from 1968, and it was often worn by U.S. soldiers in the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War was 1955 to 1975. Okay, so wow. I, I'm We're right. We're both right Phew. on. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'm not dumb after all, guys. Let's go. Just kind of. Anyway, so after his birth, well, what I was trying to say, though, is that I feel like during the Vietnam War especially, it was common for military men to hook up with some of the women over there, and then they'd have these babies. But men been hooking up with women for years, babe. Let's roll. But hold on, because it's important. It's It actually is important to this story, because I do think it was common for this to happen, and then these kids, 
kids that are birthed from these illegitimate relationships end up in foster care or in orphanages. And that, that is what happened to him. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so thanks. <laughs> anyway... <clears throat> After his birth, he was placed in an orphanage, and then he was adopted at the tender age of three. He was adopted by Richard and Fredonia Grissom, and Richard was also in the U.S. Army and worked as a sergeant. So the Grissom family's early years were marked by frequent relocations before they finally settled down in Kansas. And details about his early childhood are unknown, but during his high school years, Richard Jr. garnered popularity for his striking good looks amiable demeanor and his stellar academic achievements. He consistently made AB honor roll and became the football team's halfback, which I was going to ask you, what is a halfback? Cause I don't even know. A halfback is a running back. Oh, just another term for a running back. All right. Well, there you go. So his educational journey took him through various high schools, including Leavenworth high school. And on the morning of January 27th, 1977, He left his home after getting into a big fight with his parents over an uncharacteristically bad grade. So as he was walking, he came upon a railroad track and stole one of the spikes out of the railroad ties. And then he used that spike to break into one of his neighbor's houses. It was the house of 72-year-old Hazel Meeker. He attacked Hazel and killed her. And then he left. How old was he at this point? 16 or 17. Holy shit. Yeah, he was 16 going to turn 17 that year. So her granddaughter, Carla, was living in an addition to the home. So when she went into Hazel's part of the house to visit her, she found her in a pool of her own blood. So Carla called police, and when they arrived, they found footprints in the snow all around the house. So they literally followed the footprints, and it led to the railroad tracks where Richard stole that spike, And then they continued to follow the footprints until they ended exactly where Richard was hiding at a trailer park. And so when they spotted him, he was caught trying to bury a handgun that he had stolen from another house, but he buried it under the snow. So police found that pretty quickly and he was arrested. And once he was in police custody, he confessed to the murder. Since he was only 16 at the time, he was sentenced to a juvenile detention center in Topeka, where he ultimately obtained his GED. Only two years into his sentence, Richard and another juvenile inmate escaped the center, and they were on foot for only about one day before they were captured, but during their run, they broke into another home in Jefferson County. Despite the escape, no time was added to his sentence, and he was released the following year in 1980 when he was 20 years old. What? Dude escaped prison, broke into a house, and no time was added to his sentence. No, and he killed a person. When he broke out that time? No, but like oh, that's why originally, he's there yeah. because he killed. So he killed somebody, went to prison, broke out of prison, broke into somebody's house, went back to prison, didn't get anything added to a sentence. Correct. Right on. Uh huh. Soon after his release, he enrolled at K State. He planned to pursue engineering, much to his parents' disapproval. They insisted that he go to school for computer science, and this disagreement drove an already present wedge even deeper between Richard and his parents. Because for some reason, the murder of their 77-year-old neighbor wasn't enough. But him deciding his own major was. They got in a fight over grades when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And they got in a fight over his major now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder, I just wonder how they felt about the murder that he committed. Mm-hmm. But you don't, there's no record of it. There's no interviews, nothing. Mm-hmm. So while he was on campus, he tried out to be on the, the school's track team. After he stumbled upon a practice on the track. 
So he asked the track coach if he could apply to be on the team. And when the coach tried to look at his past school record, nothing came up. And Richard admitted to the coach that he'd had some problems in the past, but that he had grown and moved on from that phase of his life. So the coach decided to give him a chance, but warned him that he would not tolerate any bullshit. So Richard showed up to practice every day on time. He worked hard and he listened well, and he always answered his coach with yes, sir, or no, sir. But despite his efforts, he really struggled with hurdling. His coach, Mike Ross, said, quote, his initial attempts were anything but graceful. He crash landed a few times, so they called him the rock man because he dropped like a rock. And it quickly became evident that he wouldn't be able to compete with the team, so he quit. In November of 1982, a month before final exams, he allegedly stole $190 from a resume service in Manhattan, and then he just never returned back to school. He was, however, charged with felony theft and sentenced to two to five years in jail and placed on three years of supervised probation. Further legal troubles ensued when on January 19th of 1983, he was charged with another theft in Manhattan, which for those of you who don't know, is actually the city in Kansas where K-State is. It's not to be confused with New York City. However, this case was subsequently dismissed in 1983. The situation escalated when on March 28th of 1983, an arrest warrant was issued for him in Austin, Texas, following his failure to appear in court. This time, he faced charges related to theft and misuse of a credit card. This dude is a pretty young guy. Mm -hmm. In his life experience so far, he has a felony, misuse of a credit card. He's killed somebody. He spent some time in prison. He broke out of prison. He broke into another house. He went back to prison. Like, think of that. Think of that. Um, his resume right now is yeah. pretty intense. It is. Well, and just to be clear, he didn't actually break out of a prison. It was like a boys' uh, youth center, camp. like a juvenile detention center, which I don't know if their security is more lax, but um, that would maybe explain some things. But yeah, he's not, he's not off to a great start. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. And it becomes difficult to keep all of his crimes straight because at this point, he got in trouble frequently for theft and burglary. On July 14th of 1983, he was charged in Johnson County with unlawful use of a credit card and theft. And this time he was accused of using a card belonging to George Fatal. He was accused of charging $19.08 on the card for 14.4 gallons of gas. That's so cheap mm -hmm. for gas. Anyway, the, the case was ultimately dismissed when he paid the gas station back the $19.08. And then in October of 1983, Overland Park police arrested him on two counts. He was charged with misdemeanor theft and interference with police officers, and he was sentenced to 10 days for the misdemeanor violations and placed on one year of probation. On October 2nd of 1984, he's 24 now, he's charged with theft again. He was accused of taking an 84 Mazda RX-7, and he was released after posting a $2,000 bond. His bond was forfeited for failure to appear in court and reset at $10,000. He pleaded guilty to theft on March 29th of 1985, and he was sentenced on May 7th of 85 to one to five years in jail in order to pay a restitution of $12,239. Which, hey, something that maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like is easily overlooked, okay? Because we're a show that covers, you cover so many murders and all this crazy stuff. Just this guy obviously is one. But all of these thefts, 
it's very telling of your character. Mm-hmm. If you do it, like, people, sure, people can change, people can be forgiven for stuff, but this dude is stealing over and over and over again. Like, I don't have a bone in my body that would steal $1 from anybody. So if you are a person that can steal and just not care, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's just, I guess, I just feel like pointing out, like, his character is garbage. Correct. Yeah. And I feel like this is very foreshadowing for what is to come. Yeah. And he continues to get out with it, which is the justice system. Like we take these people who they steal cars and you hear these people who steal cars and then it's like, oh yeah, they've stolen cars before and they always get let go. Like we don't punish them like they should be punished, but it's very indicative of somebody's character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So on February 16th of 1985, he was accused of taking another Mazda, this time belonging to Paul M. Shai. He was arrested by a Shawnee police who caught him driving the stolen vehicle. He was charged as Richard A. Griffin, which is his father's name, and then he failed to make a court appearance in that case. So on February 18th of 85, he was charged with obstructing the legal process and aggravated false impersonation. Officers were attempting to serve a warrant on him regarding the missed court appearance, but obviously he didn't give the right name. So on March 1st, he was charged with two counts of grand theft and two counts of burglary. He was accused of taking keys to an office building in Mission, Kansas. He was also accused of entering a business and taking blank checks and an undisclosed amount of cash. He pleaded guilty to a single count of burglary and a single count of theft, and he was sentenced to one to three years in jail on the theft charge and then two to seven years on the burglary charge. I think, like, to what you were saying, all of the sentences are so small. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you think at this point when you've repeatedly offended with the same crime, you should have a harsher punishment? Yes. I don't know what the limitations were back then. Maybe it's changed now, but... In March of 88, he was released from the Kansas prison system and placed on a two-year parole. In June of 88, he was accused of breaking into a racquetball club in Marion. The second he got out, he went and did this again. He often played racquetball in his free time, and so due to these allegations, many players in the area shunned him. He gave a lot of people really bad vibes, and they could just tell he was trouble, and they just steered clear of him. But there was one guy who did give him a chance, and this guy's name was Eric. Eric allowed Richard to live with him as long as he stayed out of trouble and held down a job. Richard did not have much to his name, just clothes, a TV, and a video recorder. So Eric helped him out and would lend him money when he went out, giving him a little extra if Richard was going on a date. And he mostly frequented the area of Westport in Kansas City. But he wasn't a big drinker or a smoker. In fact, he often ordered orange juice instead of alcohol, which... You know who else did that? Who? Michael Jordan. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking like Ted Bundy. I don't know, like something no, bad, but MJ. He used to he was known for like going to these events and sipping on orange juice. Okay. Well, maybe that's what he was trying to emulate. I don't know. Anyway, he was six feet tall, 195 pounds of mostly muscle, so he did not have a hard time finding girlfriends. However, Eric admitted that Richard was pretty easy to manipulate and he watched as girls would just take advantage of him. And for what? I don't know. Like, what can you get from this guy who has nothing but clothes and a TV? I don't know. But mm-hmm. I guess they were taking advantage of him. So then Eric started getting phone calls from an area department store accusing someone in the household of writing bad che- checks with a fake name 
and the name was Ricky YC Cho. And he had multiple aliases. This is just the one he used for this. So maybe he was taking the girls shopping and using fake checks. Maybe or that's steal, what. stolen credit cards and stuff. Yeah, all that would make sense. Yeah, maybe that's what. I, I don't know. Anyway, that would just be an assumption. Either way, Eric confronted him about this, but gave him another chance. However, he was starting to feel like Richard was really starting to take advantage of his generosity and his kindness. So Eric's last straw was when Richard sold Eric's car to his girlfriend by forging Eric's name on the title. I'd say that'd be the last straw. Yeah. So the girlfriend actually sued Eric, claiming that he knew about the deal all along and was okay with the sale. Regardless... This was the end for Eric and Richard's friendship, and Eric kicked him out. On June 8th of 1989, Richard used another alias, Randy Rodriguez, to rent a storage locker. Coincidentally, one of his ex-girlfriends, Terry Renee Manis, was murdered the day before, but her murder remains unsolved to this day. And that would be the month that Richard turned his crimes up a notch. In the span of just over one week, a series of distressing disappearances occurred in Johnson County, Kansas. Three women, all in their 20s, inexplicably went missing. The first among these unsettling cases involved 24-year-old Joan Marie Butler from Overland Park. On June 18th, she paid a visit to a friend's house in Kansas City in the once vibrant neighborhood of the Country Club Plaza. In the early morning hours that night, her ATM card was used to make withdrawals at different banks in the area. And then when she didn't show up for work the next day, her coworkers grew concerned and let her family know. They hadn't heard from her either, and she wasn't at home, so they filed a missing persons report. On June 25th, police responded to a tip from a resident of an apartment complex in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about 30 miles south of this area. The person who called in said that they saw a man matching Richard's description entering a 1989 Chevy Corsica. And then when cops ran the information on the car, they found out that this car was rented out to Joan Butler. So they waited and they watched the car until they saw a man approach the trunk. When an officer confronted him and asked for his ID, Richard ran. He ran into an apartment where a painting crew was working, locked the door behind him, and escaped through a back window. Inside the trunk, law enforcement discovered a single blood stain, intensifying the sense of urgency surrounding her disappearance. They also found Richard's wallet and his checkbook in the car. The following day, two roommates, Teresa Brown and Christine Roosh, both 22 years old, hosted a going-away party for Teresa because she was in the process of moving out. The next day, Monday, June 26th, Christine called in to both her and Teresa's employers to let them know that they wouldn't be coming into work because they were sick. But nobody actually talked to Teresa that day, and nobody heard from either of them after that phone call. That evening, Christine was supposed to go to her parents' house for dinner, but she never showed up. So her dad, Dave, went to her apartment. Nobody was there. The lock was locked, so he used a card to just slip the lock open. And as he walked into her apartment, he was calling her name, but nobody answered. He went into her bathroom and saw her glasses and her contacts on the bathroom sink. And this was a huge red flag, a clear sign something went wrong because he knew she would never leave without her glasses because she was virtually blind without them. So he immediately called the police. 
When he called 911, he was surprised to learn that they were already on their way because Christine's roommate, Teresa, was missing as well after her family couldn't get a hold of her either. She'd been working at a dental office as a dental assistant, and her coworkers found it odd that Christine called in for Teresa instead of Teresa just doing it herself. So they called her brother, Jim, asking if he had heard from her, and he said no. This prompted him to go to her apartment and look for her, but she was not there. And so he tried to call Teresa's boyfriend, and he said he last saw her like a couple days ago. So detectives spent hours upon hours collecting evidence from the apartment and just running their bank statements to see if there had been any activity on their bank accounts, right? So they found security camera footage from an ATM machine. And on this machine, it captured Christine standing in front of it on the night of June 26th. She was wearing oversized sunglasses. Mind you, it's like middle of the night. She had what appeared to be a large bruise visible on her forehead. She appeared to be disheveled and distressed and she withdrew money from her account. And that was the last photograph of any of the women. There were multiple attempts to withdraw the maximum amount from both of the girls' bank accounts, and Christine was the one trying to withdraw money from both of their accounts. Two days later, while looking for the other missing girl, Joan Butler, Richard's car was found, and it was packed with all of his belongings outside of an apartment complex in Grandview. Credit cards and jewelry belonging to Christine and Teresa were found in this abandoned car. This guy's a dumbass. Earlier, he left the blood trail up from his feet mm-hmm. way earlier in his life. Wait, are you talking about the snow? He left footprints in the snow. Oh, was it footprints in the snow? Yes. Okay. And then and then he left all of his shit in his car whenever he took off running when that officer asked him. Now they find his car and they find these girls' jewelry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's obviously not a bright criminal. He's been caught in every crime he's committed. And every time he stole something, he was caught. Like, mm-hmm. he's just not bright. No. Which we knew that, but right. nonetheless. So all of their belongings were found in his abandoned car, along with keys to the apartments of the roommates and Jones. Also in the car were five fake birth certificates and official government seals. Now, it's worth noting at the time, Richard was self-employed as a contractor, and he operated a painting company. So he had master keys to multiple apartment complexes in the area. So that just begs the question, how did he even find the girls? Was this by accident? Was it by stalking? That's unfortunately an answer we'll never know. But it just made me wonder. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he was able to enter these apartments without much force. Did he watch to make sure that only girls were going to be there? That's kind of just where I'm leaning. But that's an assumption. On July 7th of 1989, Richard Grissom Jr. was apprehended in Dallas, Texas by the FBI. He was supposed to meet a young woman from his past at the airport that day, but she tipped off police, which led to his capture. So during his interrogation, he answered questions with very vague responses. He told the officers, they're not dead, but then later said, well, they probably are by now. He also told them, quote, you will dig them up. End quote, and added that everything happened in Kansas and nothing would be found in Missouri. He was clearly aware that at that time, Missouri still had the death penalty and he was trying to avoid it because he knew Kansas did not. Shortly after his arrest, KCTV5, which is a news station in Kansas City, received an anonymous two-page letter that offered to release the three women who were being held against their will but being held hostage in exchange of $1.5 million. 
The letter was investigated and it was found that the writer was 21-year-old Gary Lewis from Chillicothe, Missouri. He did not have the girls. He never did. And he admitted that he just wrote the letter to get attention. And attention is exactly what he got. Just maybe not the attention he was wanting, but he was charged with an attempted theft and falsely reporting a crime. And Judge Gerald Hugland sentenced him to the maximum punishment of one... Well, it was only a year. Oh, still good. I'm glad he got a maximum punishment, though. I was thinking this sounds like it's going to get off with nothing. No. He received the maximum punishment of one year in prison with a $1,500 fine. And during the sentencing, he said he wanted to send a message to anyone in the future who wanted to commit such a scurrilous act. I can't even imagine how furious the girls' families had to have been when they received the news that this mm-hmm. letter that came through was written by an idiot who just wanted attention. Right, some random scumbag that had nothing to do with it. Yes, you're using this family's pain to attempt For your to gain. extort $1.5 million, and people are actually suffering. Right. Like, yeah, I, I think the punishment should have been worse for sure, but I'm glad he got the max. Anyway, in the fall of 1990, Richard was tried for the women's murders. It was the first murder trial in the history of Johnson County to ever take place without a body. It was also the first trial where they sequestered the jury in Johnson County. But the mountain of evidence that they had against Richard was enough for jurors to make up their minds, and they delivered verdicts of guilt for three charges of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated kidnapping, four counts of aggravated robbery, Two counts of aggravated burglary, one count of burglary, and one count of theft. Throw the book at him. Yes, that's what they did. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole until 2093 when he would be 133 years old. He's currently an inmate at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas. And before anyone comes for me saying it's El Dorado, my brother actually went to college there, Butler Community (laughs) College. So save it. I know it's pronounced El Dorado. Okay? I would never call it that. I wouldn't either. That's just like Porsche. You call Porsche Porsche and people are like, it's a Porsche. No, I'm going to call it a Porsche. It's like, go kick rocks. Stop. La Jala. I'll never live it down. Okay? Sometimes things just happen and we make mistakes. Okay? Because we're all just humans. <laughs> word. Okay? Word. Anyway. Is that it? Well, almost. Um, I did want to talk about the victims a little bit because this is kind of a different type of episode. Usually my episodes are very victim focused, but this one was really about the life and crimes of Richard Grissom Jr. Um, however, I... I would be lachrymose if I did not at least talk about the victims. However, it was hard to find information on them because this happened in the 80s. I couldn't find their obituaries. I couldn't find a whole lot about um, at least Joan Butler. All I knew about Joan Butler was that she was 24 years old and that she was very ambitious and outgoing. I wish that I had more information than just that because she deserves so much more than just that. But. Mm-hmm. Um, Teresa Brown was a cheerleader and prom queen at Camdenton High School in Camdenton, Missouri. She worked as a dental assistant and eventually become or planned to become a dental hygienist. She really wanted to start a family someday as she had a dream of becoming a mother. Christine Roosh graduated from Shawnee Mission South and worked in retail marketing at the North Kansas City Optics Company owned by her father, David Roosh. Her dad said that she was very outgoing, pleasant to be around, and full of life. 
She had been working for her dad for about a year before she disappeared and had just come up on her first review. And during an interview, this was the only interview I could find, but he choked up when he recalled the end of that review, telling her how proud he was of her. And his face lit up when he recalled that moment. And sometimes I think a daughter just needs to hear that from her dad. And so I'm just really glad that she got that opportunity before her life was so tragically cut short. Mm-hmm. That is all that we have for today. The prosecuting attorney in this case was Paul Morrison. I do want to um, just say that it's really a testament to the prosecuting attorney and his team in this case for convicting a man on three counts of murder without a single body. To this day, the women have never been found. And there's been some theories about them being buried um, somewhere around Clinton Lake, which is a lake right outside of Lawrence, Kansas, um, which is home to the University of Kansas, KU. Um, But those theories were explored and they were never found. So I don't think the girls will ever be found, which is sad because... Christine's dad has made a comment about how he wishes there was a place he could go to lay flowers on Memorial Day for his mm-hmm. daughter. Um, I don't know. Like, how do you, uh, how would you, you know, cope with that? I don't know how you would. Right. There would be this complete gaping hole where there was never any closure. That's just so sad. Yeah. You, gosh, it sucks to even think about it. Imagine going through it. You'd have to like create a memorial that you, view as them. Right. I think that's what I would ultimately have to do is just designate a place, a spot, you know, just for Mm her. Maybe, maybe that's what he did. But, um, there was also an issue when Richard Grissom Jr. turned 50, the Wichita Eagle newspaper, um, made an ad in their paper, like happy 50th birthday to Richard Grissom. And they had no idea that, it was this inmate who was convicted of killing women. They had no idea. They were they they eventually retracted that ad or that placement or whatever you want to call it. Um, they retracted it and said that they were the victims of a prank. Somebody was like, "What is wrong with people That's to crazy. to write these letters saying that they have the girls and then to go put an ad in the paper congratulating him on his fiftieth birthday? Like, what is wrong with people? Dirtbags. Yeah, there's a whole spectrum of goodness when it comes to people. Some people are at the very far end of shit, which is Richard Grissom Jr. And then some people are at the end, you know, of good people, like the victims in this case, Christine and Teresa and Joan. And then there's people who kind of like lean towards the middle left where they're like, you know, just pieces of shit for writing these letters and playing pranks. Like, what Mm -hmm. do you get out of that? I don't know. I just, I just want to ask, where are your parents? Where are your parents? I would like to speak to your parents. Anyway. Well, good episode on another dirt bag, Kelly. Thanks. Mom and Mystery Live is this week, so there will not be a, an episode um, on the, the platforms. Podcast, yeah. yeah, but there is going to be a live show, and I'm so excited. This is our second live show. We've sold it out again. I am so proud of this. So cool. I'm so excited, but I'm even more excited about the potential to do more shows across the country in little towns, little spaces. Like I just, I just want to travel. I want to meet more of our listeners. We have a ton in all these other, other cities. We looked up our demographics and the number one city, oddly enough, given that we're relatively close to Kansas city, the number one city where we have the most listeners is Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. Seattle. So shout out to Seattle. Shout out Seattle. What were the other ones? Atlanta, Atlanta, Denver, New York, New York city was one. Yep. Anyway, it's just really cool. I'm so thankful. You guys are just 
the freaking coolest. I, I can't even tell you, like, I never imagined that this is what my life would end up being. However, I was always told in school that I talked a lot. My parents always told me, you talk too much. Mm. Well, look at me now. Mom look at me dad. now, bitch. Anyway, Good I was going to make a, a joke about my dead mom, but I won't. I'm not going to do, do it. do that. Mama. <laughs> Mystery. Out. Bye. <laughs>